Daniel Shin is the sous chef at Bar Mignonette, a new restaurant on the second floor of Caribbean favorite Patois, right near Trinity Bellwoods. It's a fun new seafood wine bar where the menu changes on a daily basis, but consists of some great dishes like uni pasta, shrimp cocktails, and the classic pairing of lobster and butter. I mean, what can be better? Of course, all of this can be crushed down with some bottles of white burgundy and other great wine offerings. While Mignonette's identity is that of a seafood wine bar, Daniel's pedigree for gastronomy and cooking covers a lot of different cuisines and geographies, kind of like a culinary polyglot. Having trained at the George Brown Culinary School, he's worked in a multitude of different restaurants in Toronto, like working with friend of the podcast, Stuart Sakai at Sakai Bar. He's had an opportunity to work and study in Italy, plating with some world-class chefs like Mauro Colagreco, who currently has the number one restaurant in the world, as well as doing a two-year stint in Kyoto, Japan, studying both kaiseki, the traditional Japanese multi-course meal, and omotenashi, the art of Japanese hospitality. Ultimately though, Daniel loves food, whether it's selling Korean-style marinated vegetables to friends during lockdown, or conducting R&D, eating out at other restaurants. We dive deep into his passion, his story, and even more, on this episode of the Gastronomy Club. Gastronomy Club. I want to talk about how in a previous conversation we had that you actually told me you wanted to go into teaching at first. I was curious, how, how did you go from teaching to, to cooking instead? So, well, it's always a passion to like help people and really, uh, you know, bring them to the next level. Um, in terms of like, the interchangeable things with teaching to cooking. Yeah, it's like going from academia to the labor, which is a big jump. But um, I would say like, I really just want to make people happy. And I think uh, there's a deep passion of mine to really create spaces and, you know, really engage with people. Yeah, and in terms of people, you could be talking about children and, you know, adults and stuff. But in the end of the day, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. and. Uh, yeah, really follow what I really believed in and it didn't really exist in a classroom setting, I think. <laughs> I mean, with teaching as well and, and with cooking, you're constantly learning it and you're constantly being almost like a student, right? And, exactly. and taking lessons and, and looking at things in, in a student's perspective. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you know, to hand that knowledge down to people and, you know, share that, it's a, it's a great pleasure, you know, as well. So I guess, how, how did you get into cooking into the, in the first place? How, how did that inspiration start? Or when you first started, was it cooking for yourself or cooking for someone else? Well, it, I grew up like as an only child. So basically cooking was just kind of part of my routine or part of the uh, kind of survival mode, I guess, because my parents are working long hours and you know, you're stuck at home and doing nothing. So you got to feed yourself. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it started off with like, looking at Gordon Ramsay from the beginning from like Hell's Kitchen and, you know, really falling in love with like the TV shows and stuff and Food Network. But, you know, it grew and grew, grew and a lot of exper experimentation and, you know, I love science. So I heard this um, kind of fanciful kind of quote that, uh, you know, saying that the, the kitchen is a science lab and what you're only doing is basically chemistry and biology and all of this. So like expanded my mind as like, wow, how cooking could be that? And it is basically. And so I love science. I love cooking. So let's, uh, let's try it out. And as a, as a, as a child, it sounded very um, crazy, but you know, you're just cooking ramen <laughs> for yourself all the time. <laughs> I mean, ramen is kind of like pizza where you can 
experiment with it so much by just putting so many different like toppings or not toppings but uh items in it whether it's egg or cheese and yeah and playing around with it and seeing where it can go it's like it's a canvas so yeah it's a lot of things to put inside of it yeah you could do a lot of things definitely and then when did you kind of realize this is really what i wanted to do and and when did you start to take it a bit more seriously well like diving in like um I, th- I think I took it very seriously in the beginning and like, you know, as a, as a green cook, you like aspire to be the best of everything. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So like, you know, transitioning, just keeping that mindset, like I kind of came out of uh, and used some years into a, a, like a career, but it didn't work out. So if I'm going to transition into this new season or this new career, I'm going to give my all. And that was like my mindset from the beginning. And, you know, I could attest to every kind of green cook out there, like, you know, starting this, like you prepare yourself. You're like, oh, I'm going to work in the best restaurants and learn from the best people. And, you know, you have that mindset going in. And that was the same with me. Like I was trying to really know and kind of create a bucket list. And that included like working at a three Michelin star restaurant, you know, what is, what is my voice and how can I cook? like the best food and what is the best food and, you know, trying to figure that out daily. And, you know, it's a journey though. Like it's been that for a while, but a lot of things have changed and my thinking of cooking has changed. So yeah, it's a, it's an evolution. I think. Right. So when you decided to go into cooking, um, I know you dove deep into so many different cuisines, just working at a variety of different restaurants and, and establishments, Italian, modern Canadian, Mexican, Korean, Japanese. I find it kind of interesting that you got your feet wet with so many different uh, different cuisines and, and really broadened your palate. What's the philosophy with practicing at all these different types of restaurants? Was it just by coincidence or was it purposeful? And especially when they're all kind of very technically different and uh, very different taste wise. So I think like in my general head space of like really entering and the transition in, like getting to where I am today, it was never planned, but in the succession of jumping from cuisines and understanding was this idea of like, if I'm going to cook or if I'm going to teach someone to cook, I should know how to cook everything, (laughs) which is like a big task. And like, that's kind of crazy. Right. But Mm. what that really defined, what that definition really grew to was like, if I, if I know something, I'll be confident enough to say I know it. That's like basically my motto. Mm. So if like someone asks me like, oh, can you make Japanese food? I can confidently say, yeah, I know what Japanese food is about. And that was like my whole goal. Like if I was going to dive into a cuisine or what if I could get anything out of it was like, if someone had asked me, can you do this? I could be very versatile and know that. But in the end, and the first kind of choosing of these cuisine was because I love them. You know, but I love Mexican food. I love Japanese food. I love Italian food. I love all these things. But if I looked at like what I could cook in Toronto and what was popular in Toronto, those are were the things, right? Those were the don't dominant cuisines in the city, like the Italian food, you know, the Japanese food or, but like, was I really understanding that? Like getting a good knowledge of that in the city? Maybe not. So I had to travel and really figure out what the true culture and, you know, cuisine was and the history and how it became so popular and why people eat like this in other countries. So 
yeah, it was just mostly very out of like curiosity, exploration, and really to dive deep into something. And um, if I am going to go into something, I, I really want to get the most out of it.、Mm-hmm. So that's how I like jump from cuisine to cuisine. But it, what all like sparked from the beginning was, you know, I love it. So、mm. I love eating that stuff. I mean, I love eating it as well, definitely. And you've worked yeah, at some、yeah. you've worked at some familiar places as well. I know you worked with Stu at Sakai Bar、um, when he first、yeah. started, and I had talked with him earlier. You worked at Canoe as well. Yep. Yeah, you've worked at some I guess familiar restaurants within the city. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and I got、um, a good range of like expertise from Toronto itself, but also overseas. I would say most of my like concrete training has come from like I would say. Just from the George Brown Italian program, I went to Italy for like nine months, and it was a it was a life changing experience. Like I really learned the region that I cooked in, which was Piemonte Alba, like the right truffles and the red wine, and really expanded my knowledge of like what Italian food is. And turns out it's not just spaghetti and pasta and pizza. You know, <laughs> it's、uh, it's much more. You know, and, and it's a way of dining and how they interact and their type of hospitality and. When you learn about food, you learn about the people, the culture, the history. So, it was a very enriching experience, and I was always chasing that. So, yeah, those were the reasons why I would dive into these things. Like, it wasn't just about like, oh, let me try and make the best something. It was always about why and why is it so good. Right. I mean, yeah, there's there's nothing like Italian hospitality, especially with like nonas and.、Uh, I don't even know what the male equivalent of a nona is, grand grandfather, <laughs> but、uh, grandmother, <laughs> grandmother. Isn't isn't nona, nona grand is grand- isn't nona a grandmother already? And then、uh, it's gr- nona's grandmother. Yeah, and then the male equivalent is noni. No not. No not. Oh, okay. So I think there's an accent or something. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, but、um, definitely, yeah. There's nothing like Italian hospitality and. And yeah, I did want to kind of touch upon that because you you did spend a lot of time working abroad.、Um, I know Italy, you worked、uh, several months there, and then Japan, you worked two years as well. Yeah. What was the reason for wanting to get that really long term exposure and, and training to Japanese cuisine rather than maybe a shorter period of time? So in terms of Japanese food, I think the、uh, it's a it's a perseverance. I think it's a long journey. And to really understand the craft there, it's、uh, you have to dedicate basically your life. Like、yeah. <laughs> it's a serious thing, and I don't think they view cooking as a craft or a like kind of a job or something that they can get better at. It's a lifestyle.、Mm. So, in terms of that, it was it was like if I am going to be here. I should really learn and get the most out of it, right? As I said before, but even two years is is a fraction. Like、yeah. younglings, there they they work like ten years, and you know the common saying or the cliche that people say, like in sushi restaurants, they're like you spend ten years、Washing、trying rice, to just、yeah. wash rice, right? So that stuff is very true. But、uh, why that is true is like when you look at the techniques and stuff that they want to give to the next generation. It has to be in their bones. Like it's not,、um, oh, this technique. Try it a couple times and you get it. No, it's、uh, it's like, do you deserve it? Do you really encapsulate this philosophy? Do you understand it? And is it you're doing this daily? And that's when it's transferred, and that's when you can really seep that knowledge. And 
you know, it's been a blessing to just even be in that kind of environment and to uh, just really touch upon those things. But yeah, even within the two years, like I could barely do anything really, but doing everything at once too at the same time. So right. yeah, it's a very different experience. Yeah. Were you there for like a training program at a restaurant or for, for a school almost? So it was um, an actual invitation from the uh, MAF uh, kind of academy. So it's actually part of the government and they mm. oversee the agriculture and fisheries. And um, basically it was an invitational like program where they invite foreign chefs from multiple countries and they do this like kind of cultural exchange, but they make them work in a kind of old school Kaiseki restaurant environment. And these establishments are like hundred plus years. You know, some of them include three Michelin stars, but in Japan, you know, Michelin stars are kind of like a worldly thing in terms of like where I cooked was Kyoto. And that's where the pinnacle of like food gastronomy is, I would say in Japan, like, and is recognized as like, their higher form of food. And that's where I was invited to, which is very daunting, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in the time period of when I was um, on the opening team at Oh My, where they participated in um, kind of like an event where they worked with the Japanese government and they invited Japanese chef to come over and do kind of like a demo on dashi. And I guess they were spreading applications around and you know, I had nothing to lose, so I signed up and was chosen out of Canada, which is a crazy, crazy thing. But yeah, and then I met some amazing friends and, you know, still to this day, we kind of connect. And I'm back in Toronto now after that journey, but it was crazy. <laughs> so I'm curious because Omai is kind of like a Korean-Japanese fusion restaurant almost. You had almost a rudimentary understanding of Japanese cuisine, I guess, before going. And then I'm sure when you went, your your whole perception and paradigm must have been broken and and it expanded in a lot of different ways. To be honest, actually, I didn't know the um, intensity of what the Japanese cuisine is, Mm. especially like the higher form of it, of course. I didn't even know what kaiseki was and what I was really going to be cooking. I was like, oh, I'm really into ramen and I really was very naive. Um, (laughs) But I really had a soul for like Asian food and I'm a sucker for like Chinese food and I just think it's it touches every gastronomy to be honest and we steal everything from them but, for sure you know, yeah in terms of that i always wanted to learn what like asian food was and you know japan was kind of a bridge i would say that in my head oh yeah i'll go to japan and see if i can go to other countries and learn about their things and see it as like a diving board but when i really got into it i really knew that it was um it was different and uh incredible surreal experience i would say but uh extremely um grueling because they have a very different work culture of course what what was what was it like were you working really late or was just non-stop back to back yeah in terms of um if i would say work and as i said before it's a lifestyle they don't differentiate Um, when if it's life, you literally live at the restaurant. So there were like kind of no working hours until everyone left, until the chef left. Some days were 20 plus hours. Some days were 
you know, shorter, but you still had to be at the restaurant right. and still be working, right? In terms of um, the most grueling kind of season is when you enter New, New Year's and they have this um, season called Osechi. And basically you have to make thousands and thousands of like bento boxes. Wow. <laughs> and it's not just one tier, it's like multiple tiers and within every tier there's like hundreds of items right yeah i'm exaggerating with the numbers of course but, <laughs> you know i think just from our restaurant we did like upwards to like maybe 800 boxes and it was uh all day literally you don't sleep you start from like 8 a.m in the morning and then it's 8 a.m till the next day and you just keep making it <laughs> wow and the, i guess the thing is all these boxes have to be consistent right they're all the same constantly doing the same thing over and over consistent yeah and in terms of food you have like incredible abalone in there and like very expensive ingredients and the whole idea is i think the idea is not to cook during the new year so they have these bento boxes to celebrate and eat over a period of three days so yeah, there's contracts with department stores and, you know, overall, like Japan, just when they celebrate a holiday, they really celebrate a holiday. So right. everyone buys these bento boxes and they try to buy from the most famous or popular restaurants. Right. And, you know, the place I worked where it was very established, we were doing a lot of boxes, of course. <laughs> and, you know, obviously when you're in Japan, you're definitely going to be eating a lot as well. What was some of the more interesting or cooler uh, dishes that you had or culinary experiences i'm sure there must have been thousands yeah i would say as a chef when you eat out it's uh like an r d kind of situation yeah. where you research <laughs> and develop. well some of them are definitely for pleasure and a lot of my experiences were for pleasure but in terms of um like mind-blowing and like life-changing like experiences i would say i would say um eating soba in Kyoto was like one of those things. And mm. I don't say this quite often, but I think the five best meals in my hand, and I think it squeezed at one of them wow. <laughs> during my life. And uh, I think this soba in Kyoto, um, it's just, it's just made by this man. And he has maybe uh, like an eight seater restaurant or something like that tucked into this place, like in the philosopher's path in Kyoto. And, my goodness, it, it, it was uh, mind-blowing. I call it the speechless soba because like, <laughs> after I ate, I ate a bowl, I was like, what is going on? And I had to have another one. And it takes like 20 minutes to make one kind of <laughs> one bowl because he wow. he makes it from scratch. Like he grinds a soba, then he makes it and you can see him slice it. And then he uses uh, like really coarse mineral salt and some special like spicy negi and daikon which is like a Kyoto kind of vegetable there. Um, so you don't get wasabi or the traditional kind of idea of what soba is. And it's very toothy, it's very, um, it's chewy, but it's a very different type of soba. It's very unique and uh, he changed my mind <laughs> about what soba could be and it's it was incredible. <laughs> I definitely wanna check out that place now because I kind of think soba is... I, I, I want to say it's a secret, but yeah, I'll tell you later. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have the best idea. Like, I'm not a big, the biggest fan of soba, so that's why I'm interested. Yeah, it's mind-blowing because I would, I you know, as for pleasure, you all know that ramen is like the best noodle in Japan, I would say. Right. But yeah, I had an amazing ramen, of course, but man, I fell in love with soba, I think, in, uh, in Kyoto. <laughs> Definitely. And 
going on the flip side, going all the way over to Europe when you were in Italy. What was that experience like? Because I know you were working and plating at, at, a, at, a, some, at a Michelin star restaurant and working with some pretty successful and relatively famous chefs as well. In terms of um, Italy, so it's hand in hand with school. So definitely, um, you know, you were in that school mentality, but you were working. So it was great. And during those times, um, I think it was the first time I was cooking outside of in a different work environment and culture and stuff like that. But yeah, it was amazing. Like uh, in terms of the the intensity of the kitchen and what I got to work with, like full full animal butchery and breaking it down and making stews. And surprisingly enough, the area I was working in they didn't have a lot of pasta, but they had two types of pasta and anything stuffed. They were calling it in your little the plin, where you pinch where that name comes from, and then. Um, you roll it out very thin, you roll the dough over and you pinch, 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 and you cut with the uh, pasta roller. And then you get these little tiny dumplings, I would say. And um, they would go into this intense brodo, which is like a broth that they make out of um, meats and game meats and stuff, um, seasoned with thyme and, you know, traditional mirepoix, carrot, celery, onion, and uh, wow. very flavorful and very rich. And then the other type of pasta that they had was called tayarin. Yeah, it was a, a very regional kind of pasta and they used egg noodle pasta and it almost reminded me of like Chinese noodles and stuff. And even how they prepared it was you, you roll it out thin sheets and then you cut, you hand cut it. So this technique, like, you know, even like Korean karguksu, right? Like knife cut noodles and, you know, Japanese egg noodles is like a combination of that. And then I'm cooking that in Italy, which is mind blowing, right? And right. it was saying, yeah, those little things really changed my head around how parallel food cultures can be and where they can find that bridge of what what is amazing, right? And yeah, those, those things were really eye-opening and just a work culture was really cool because uh, they did have a break in between. Which, uh, a little siesta? The siesta, right? <laughs> yeah, during that time, I uh, I mastered the uh, power nap, I would say. It was uh, uh, classic. a research <laughs> research project to myself. But working, For sure. It was, yeah, you were definitely working longer hours, but you still had that break. So everyone would uh, drink espressos and be all zippity zippity, but I was like super tired. So I figured out a way of like, sipping some coffee and forcing yourself to sleep. And by the time you wake up and you digest the caffeine, you wake up really energized and mm -hmm. ready for the services. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what they say to do. They say to drink the coffee before you go to bed or before you take a nap and then you wake up a lot more refreshed anyways, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. It's hard to do, it's a, it's a, it's a discipline. <laughs> for sure. And, and working at Michelin star restaurants, you know, I've never worked in a Michelin star restaurant, but I've only, you only kind of hear and see stories. And obviously there's a certain level of, of limelight and, and uh, respect that comes with having that uh, tag next to your restaurant, right? You know, did it, did it kind of meet your personal expectations? Is the brand that comes with the name valid? Um, just having worked in that, in, in those type of kitchens. So I would equate it to every three Michelin star restaurant isn't the same. And every two Michelin star, every one must one Michelin star restaurant isn't the same. I was really looking for what was like the excellence, what was the best, what was the Navy SEALs of cooking, right? Like, how can I get better? And 
yeah, everyone has their perspective of it. Some people may say like, oh, it's working for like not as any different as working for like McDonald's or like you know, <laughs> a big company like Nike or something, you know, like right. they have that branding, they have that powerhouse and it's a revolving door of people. And, mm-hmm. but they produce product that everyone loves, right? It's just set at a higher market price, right? And they're using prime ingredients and the techniques that they're using are 40, 50 things on just one plate. So yeah, it equates to that and it's justified for the prices. But for me, it was just understanding that and really knowing the difference of how I wanted to cook and what was really good cooking and to really understand that and develop my own understanding of that too. Um, of course, as a young cook, you want to go and work for the best and know what their ideas were and how they got to that point. And it's awe-inspiring. You look up to these people. But in the end of the day, I realized like, you know, you just try to, it, it's too fussy sometimes. There's a lot of, lot of things, right? And I would say there's genres or there's like, classes within even Michelin star restaurants. And just mm-hmm. because you have a star doesn't mean, or just because you have these accolades doesn't mean you're, you're not producing amazing food, right? I really equate that to like the restaurants in Japan, like those restaurants in Japan that are serving the most excellent food uh, are the simplest. And they don't have an Instagram. They don't have uh, um, accolades. They don't share but they just have locals, right? And right. people just know that's the best food, right? And people just go there. That's what hospitality is, I think. And hmm. in terms of if we're talking about like a Michelin star restaurant, it's like a brigade system, right? So it's like an army. You're, you're, you're commanding an army and you're a soldier in that and you're preparing for war. And it's a different mindset and a different perspective how to cook. And yeah, I can't say it's a bad thing or you shouldn't strive to be and cook in one of those establishments and but understanding and working in one of them like that's not my voice i think <laughs> mm. after going to italy after going to japan working in toronto what did you find your voice to be or are you still kind of searching for it as well yeah it's always it's always a journey right but um i think i'm comfortably at a place where i really want to just make I know it's a very general thing, but make people happy, right? But mm-hmm. something that's relatable and simple and creative doesn't have to be like a million things on a plate or some cool technique or a gimmick or the usual suspects of using like a cool ingredient or something. Like I really want to, you know, push people's palates to try new things, but knowing that they can come into a very comfortable spot and really when you build a restaurant or something like that, that has to come in the forefront, right? And what kind of theme you want to give or this experience you want to give to the guests, right? Right. So now you're the sous chef at uh, Mignonette, specifically with a focus on seafood, and and you're responsible in curating the day-to-day menu. So, you know, related to your voice, how are you kind of incorporating that um, into into picking out you know what you're serving on a day-to-day basis but as well are you kind of drawing influences from your training that you've had in the past definitely yeah a lot of techniques and a lot of things to do uh, within Japanese cuisine and stuff and what I learned in kaiseki food yeah it goes hand in hand you use the paintbrushes and tools that you know right and it is fresh in my head so 
why not? But um, I try to sneak Dashi into a lot of things and try to put Umami in places where people don't expect it. And, you know, we try to set an environment where it is not Asian, like it is just a seafood wine bar and we want people to very, be very comfortable. And um, yeah, if you were to pull out these terms and these things, I think people would be deterred from that, right? It's a place where you relax and chat with a friend or have a date night. And you have to understand those colors that you're painting with, right? So as a chef, of course, you want to throw everything that you have but I think in the end of the day, you'll be burnt out. Um, mm. How I conceptualize and try to uh, create a menu is just storytelling, really, and really being knowing your environment and just coming back. You know, I fell in love with the Toronto produce and Toronto suppliers. And even though we don't get like the most prime sea seafood, we're trying to you know source the best things that we can get and use very minimal techniques to it and just really showcase the brightness and freshness of seafood, right? And you know, we're limited with um, such a such a small kitchen. We're literally working off a bar. I'm not joking you. We're working off of oh, like, wow. the back. <laughs> so it's a challenge. And um, even doing hot foods and stuff, like we don't have an oven. We don't have like constant fire that we could get smoke out of. So we're trying to implement all these techniques and really mm-hmm. in the end of the day, create something simple, something that's approachable, something that is just extremely extremely tasty and whether that touches Japanese food that I know of or my fellow cook Shea like you know working at Brothers and stuff we all kind of come together and create a menu that speaks our kind of collective as a restaurant and um, yeah we just want to produce like really really good food. (laughs) So I guess being constrained with these limitations makes you have to be a bit more playful or, or find alternative routes to kind of present seafood in a different way or express it in in a different way as well exactly it is uh kind of a double-edged sword yeah seafood is the best when it's fresh so cold (laughs) but in terms of certain types of seafood you want to you want to warm up and really you know be engaging with it and with fire with smoke but we're looking into ways of like curing and um, preserving and things that we can use that small space to the best of its ability right it's Mm. very tight and even in terms of COVID, it's uh, it's a risk to be even open, right? Right. It's it's a challenge, but yeah, it really pushes us to be more creative. And I think if you do work in a sandbox, um, you can build amazing things. I think. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. You know, I know that you are working on top of patois, but how was opening a restaurant during COVID and quarantine? And it's such a brutal industry already. But knowing that you're going to be launching it such like a tenuous time where everything is so uncertain Uh, what was that like well in terms of opening a restaurant it's just not a one-man thing so it's a Mm. collective team effort and i would say i rely on just the three pillars of our restaurant you know like our owner craig wong and just immense you know expertise from rob our som and you know bar manager and front of house dude and uh shea and alex and you know all these all these people coming together and really creating something but when i jumped onto this project it was in motion for like in in a year and i was in limbo and they Mm -hmm. were building out a space beside it and we weren't supposed to be cooking off a bar right Um, we were supposed to have a built-out kitchen and have way more seats and in terms of 
I think a business decision, you know, they had to open because they were holding on to this spot for a while. And as a chef, you had all these thoughts and dreams of doing a lot of things and all these dishes that you wanted to create. But there's also these many, many factors and thoughts that race through your head during times of how people are going to dine in COVID times, right? Mm. What I found was people just want to eat simple, simple food. And it really reflected on just even seeing Instagram posts of people doing meal kits and even these fine dining places doing like, you know, marketplaces or bottle shops and just like, you know, selling what they have and trying to survive. And it was a time of survival. So when we conceptualized the concept, it was really high in the beginning, but I think we wanted to start off kind of down here and be more approachable and relatable and then work our ways up. And that's what I found with other kind of openings as well. Like you would want to start low and then slowly build up, right? So. Definitely. You know, you've been part of the Toronto uh, restaurant scene for a while. And even though you've gone abroad a couple of times, um, having worked in it, how do you see the Toronto restaurant environment changing, evolving? And how do you think it can become even better? Because you know, we're, it's not New York City, it's not London, but it does, you know, it does deserve its own pedestal. So where do you, where do you see it going? I, I feel like um, in terms of Toronto, uh, it's a very, very, very small environment, I think. Um, there's a lot of support, a lot of friends and networking going on, and it's a great city to cook in. But in terms of our voice or what we're known for, I think we're not there yet still. I think we're a bit less confident. Uh, we rely on kind of the staples and and it really, it goes in hand in hand, I think with like the clientele you feed too, right? Like in terms of Toronto, yeah, there are adventurous people. There are those hipsters that want to try new things or, you know, people who, who go to other countries and come back and want that find out any experience. But in terms of Toronto, it's its own thing and it's evolving and yeah, I do have my frustrations with it, where I want it to be, and but in the end of the day, I'm only a puzzle piece in the whole puzzle. So, you know, I'll leave that to another time. But mm -hmm. I think Toronto is growing, of course, and I would say like it's New York like 20 years back still. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Was there a part of you that maybe wanted to work at in a bigger city after having trained in Italy, Japan, and Toronto? Did you want to go to a city like New York and and really flesh out your career there? Or was it always wanting to come back to Toronto and, and doing something here? In terms of me personally, I would want to work in San Francisco. Um, there's always been restaurants that I really wanted to work there. Um, but, you know, due to the Trump situation and visa and all that stuff mm. and COVID and, you know, a lot of things had to be shuffled around. But in terms of why I really wanted to cook in Toronto is Toronto's home. And I really want to bring back what's good in this world and really feed people in Toronto like the best it can be, right? And mm -hmm. and I think Toronto just, you know, slowly needs to develop um, a confidence, I think, with, with their cooking. And in terms of voice, I, I, I don't know what it is, like what Toronto is known for. And I don't think we should have something that we're known for, but I think we produce like the best cooks in the world, to be honest. You see a lot of Canadians out in the world and they're cooking at like the best restaurants too. And I don't want to put blame on, um, you know, who we feed though is, but I think like in terms of clientele and people, the food IQ is lower and 
it's hard to be creative and try to push people when they just want, you know, the regular things or fast food. And it is understandable, right? And it is an immigrant country. There's a lot of lot of voices to be fed and be heard in, in our industry. And, you know, it's finding a space, you know, and trying to be niche. <laughs> so Definitely. yeah, I think we are a mo- mosaic. <laughs> I think you brought up a good point about having so many different voices that maybe it clashes everything out and jumbles up things in a bit. And- having so many different perspectives in food and cuisine, I I guess in a good way with how diverse it can get, but maybe sometimes in a negative way as well. It it halts progress in like a collective one voice that we can all ascribe to, but since we have multiple voices and multiple cooking and it's like, what is the best? That is the question, right? And I think everything's amazing, right? If you really dive deep into it, but it's just hard for people to get invested in a voice and invested into this thing. And it's a lot of scatterbrain sometimes. And in the end, you just want comfort food, right? And I think that's Mm -hmm. what people gravitate towards and they just want to uh, find an environment that they're comfortable with. And I think um, Toronto's slowly building those kind of restaurants and in terms of a space where they can feel um, they're eating cool and amazing food. But sometimes if you dive deep into the food, it may not be sometimes. So those are where I want to change, uh, I think the Toronto scene. And I think there are restaurants like that and there's amazing restaurants out there I'm really pushing that boundary of like serving Michelin quality food in a comfortable environment, I think. Let me ask you, what are your what are your favorite spots to eat in Toronto? Oh, I haven't been in Toronto back in a while, so I have to um, visit some friends here and there. But I do love um, just the cozy spots like uh, I do love the Lee brothers do at Hanmoto. And I love Sakai Bar, of course. And... You know, I love Omai. Omai is a dear, dear place in my heart. Yeah, and any anything in Chinatown. <laughs> you know, last question uh, for people that want to learn more about you and uh, if they want to learn more about uh, Mignonette as well, where can they go? So you guys can check out, um, we, ha- we do have an Instagram account and uh, we are open uh, from Tuesdays to Saturdays. Yeah, and we open from five and we are seafood wine bar and we focus on natural wines from Canadian to France. And um, yeah, it's uh, a place where you could have a really fancy kind of um, intimate date night or, you know, just crush a bunch of wines with some friends. And yeah, I'll be there all the time (laughs) and uh, hope to see you there, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Honestly, everyone, if you do go, you'll see Daniel, I guess, working behind the bar. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I'll say say hi behind the glass. Awesome. Thanks for the time again. Uh, I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.